Amen, amen. Good morning. Uh, it's good to see so many of you here, and uh, it's not lost that this is a very uncertain time, and I feel like I got a barrage of emails and texts this morning of people who are saying they're going to be cautious and they're going to stay home. And this, you could not write a stranger year and a stranger time to live in. Uh, but thankfully, when we gather, we gather before a God who is unchanging and a God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and a God whose word does not shift when the cultures does. And so hopefully this morning it will be an encouragement for you as we're in the Gospel of Mark. And maybe for just a brief moment, you can shut off your mind to all of the headlines and all the, uh, the uh, craziness. If you were wise enough to not check the news this morning, hopefully you have a clear mind because... Coming together as the body, this should be a time of encouragement. This should be a time of challenge. Uh, we should be able to stand firm on the things that are firm and uh, put the cares of the world behind us. And then we can go out into the world standing firm on the truth of God. And so this morning, I want us to rearrange our thoughts. And I want you to start thinking, especially as we go through this sermon, and keep this in mind as we walk through a very short text there's a lot within it. What does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to be a disciple? Simple questions with profound answers. I think this little passage and several others that we're going to look at have a lot to tell us about what that means and how we view following Christ as God does and as His Word does. Because unfortunately, I think that in our culture, Uh, most people's ideas and most people's application fall way short of the standard that Scripture sets out for us. What does it mean to follow Christ? When Christ calls someone, when He calls us, what is the expectation? How are we to respond? And as we think about this and get into this, just very directly, we must ask ourselves, are we really following Jesus? Or... You call yourself a, a Christian, are you following a God of your own making or create a, a Jesus that, that fits in with your lifestyle and you can compartmentalize him where you want? Because are you being a follower of Jesus beyond Sunday morning, if at all? And then if you're here and you are not a follower of Christ or just like, man, maybe I need to come to church this morning or someone has invited you, there's a real question you need to ask yourself, you need to figure out is, why would I even follow Jesus at all? Why should I even care? Why does this even matter? Why would all these people not sleep in on a Sunday morning and and show up to talk about a guy who lived 2,000 years ago? What does that have to do with me? Every one of us should examine ourselves in that. So if you have your Bibles, please open them to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, so last week we ended on verses 14 and 15, and I told you we'd continue digging into them because they are so central to the message of Mark and the message of the Bible, and so we're going to expand on verses 14 and 15 again, and then show how it sets up verses 16 through 20. Mark chapter 1, verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. 
Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Let's pray. Lord our God, you are the Lord of all creation. There is no other God. There is no other God beside you. And in your infinite wisdom, you sent forth your spirit to pen words on a page. Words that many of us are familiar with, maybe some of us have never heard before that seems so simple, that seems so direct, yet have so much application for our lives. What does it mean to leave everything and follow you? Is it worth it? What does it mean that Jesus proclaims the good news of God, you, the almighty God, the plan of the Father, the work of the Son, and the power of the Spirit. Lord, I pray this morning that your Spirit would work within hearts and minds here, those listening at home, those who may listen during the week, that your Word would go forth and it would accomplish its purpose because it is living and active. Lord, forgive your servant if I get in the way, that you would work in spite of my weakness and frailty and inability to proclaim all that you are and all that you have done. That you may be glorified, that you may increase, and I would decrease to the praise of your glory because you are good and your plans and your ways are just and right. Thank you for this encouragement this morning that there is good news and that there is a call on the life of those you love. In, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And so I want to pick up in verse 14, like I said, where we left off last week. And so 14 begins with now after John was arrested. This is kind of a time marker because as we said, Mark is not concerned with getting every detail in there. Mark has a very specific purpose. Mark wants you to know that this is the gospel of God. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and Him specifically. So some time has passed between verse 13 and verse 14. And so John or Mark puts a, um, a, a time marker in there. And so first I want to talk about where Jesus is. So now after John, this is John the Baptist, was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee. Now, Jesus is from Galilee, so that would make sense. Uh, this is where He worked, this is where His disciples fished, but it doesn't mean much to us. So I want to kind of paint a picture um, a, a little later, but what we're going to see is that Galilee, is a, it's, it's a small town. This is blue collar, this is working class, there is no rich aristocracy here. So the first thing we're going to see is that Jesus does not show partiality to those in power. He doesn't go straight to Caesar's throne, he doesn't go straight to the Pharisees, he goes to the backwoods fishermen, the humble people. 
doesn't show any partiality to the rich or the educated or the mighty. This shows his concern for the weak and the lowly and the unassuming of the world. And that does not change. So he goes into Galilee and he's proclaiming the gospel of God. What is the gospel of God? Well, we learned the last couple of weeks, gospel means good news. And the gospel of God is a verse most people know. We find it in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He sent His only Son, whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. It's as simple as that. The good news is that God is loving and God is merciful and God in the flesh walked on earth so that those who believe in Him would have eternal life. And what does this mean to Israel? Because they weren't in the room when Jesus said those words to Nicodemus. What this means to Israel is that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is still working. He still cares for Israel. He still cares for His people. And the good news is that God is merciful, and if you repent and turn to Him, you will have salvation in Him. This is good news for whoever hears it. And not only that, but there is eternal life and security in His Son, the ones whose words are on His lips. Jesus proclaims the good news. This is a little... um, a little odd for us because we think about, well, we're always pointing people to Christ. So what is Jesus complaining? What is Jesus proclaiming? He is the good news. He is the content of the gospel. Who better to explain what the good news is than the good news himself? Jesus tells us in John, you believe in God, believe also in me. This is the message. Believe in God, believe also in me because I and the Father are one. The good news so that even though Israel is lost and has turned their back on God and has hated Him and gone after idols and made gods in their own images that He took on flesh and walked among them. Believe in God, believe also in me. The good news is that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and the way to salvation. So the first thing I want to encourage you with is that is worth proclaiming. And I think it's so important that, that, we, that we talk about this. I know many people who are convicted in their personal tradition, which is fine. But so many Christians are concerned with making someone Baptist or making someone Presbyterian or making someone a Calvinist or whatever other label you throw on yourself that first and foremost, the gospel is who Jesus Christ is and what he's done. First and foremost, we are to be disciples of Jesus Christ. And then as you grow and, and, and learn, there are many things that come beyond that, but the, the content of the gospel is Jesus Christ. That cannot be overstated. And then too often, we try to make people disciples of ourselves. Well, because I like to do things this way, or I prefer things this way, that's, that's how God really likes it. We have to be careful that the gospel we are proclaiming is the gospel of the Scriptures. There are many places we could go, but I want to give you one example, one of my favorites. Well, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, turn there. Otherwise, it will be on the screen. And so 2 Corinthians is a book of comfort. It is a book of hope and encouragement to the saints. This one particular passage, this is a great description of the gospel of God. This is written to the church. This is written to believers. This is an encouragement to believers to take the gospel out to others. And this is what Paul instructs them to proclaim. It begins with encouragement. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. 
The good news must start with those who have been reconciled to God. The good news must begin with someone who understands that I'm new in Christ. The old has passed away. I am his. If I've been reconciled to God, then I've also been given this ministry of reconciliation to bring together what has been brought apart, to mend what has been, what has been broken, and we have the good news of that. This ministry of reconciliation, picking up in verse 19, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. The good news is that your sins are not held against you if you are in Christ. Your sins are there without Christ. Every sin is a death sentence without Christ. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making His appeal through us. How amazing it is that God uses fallen, broken vessels to make His appeal to other fallen, broken vessels. That He does not need to use us. He could write it on the sky. He could write it on their eyeballs. But He uses us and our voices. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. This is what Jesus is doing. This is what John the Baptist is doing. Your sins have separated you from God. We implore you, be reconciled to God. That is our gospel proclamation. That is the good news of God, that you need to be reconciled to God. And how is that possible? For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For our sake, he made him who knew no sin to become sin, so that in him we may become the righteousness of God. What does that mean? This is so important because if you understand this, you understand the gospel. And it's simple and it's profound and it's challenging all in the same time. It means that him was perfect, the only one who's ever sinned. John tells us, if you say you have no sin, you are deceiving yourself. I've never heard a person say they have no sin. I've heard of stories of other people, and I wish I would talk to them. Because I would call them a liar in the moment, and then we would close the case. But for him who knew no sin, his righteousness, his perfectness before God becomes ours. And this great exchange where the righteousness of Christ is given to those who trust in him through faith. And our sins are given to him so that the slate is wiped clean and we stand before God, not only not guilty, but positively righteous because his overflowing of righteousness has been given to us. This is a beautiful news of reconciliation, that broken people can be reconciled to a perfect God because in his perfection he became perfectly man as well so that he might take our place and be our representative. A lot of big words, a lot of big things, but be reconciled to God. God's perfect, you're not. Good news, Jesus is, Jesus is perfect. You can have his perfection through faith. Amen. This is the gospel of God. This is the good news. This is why Jesus had to walk on earth so that all this could be fulfilled, so that God could be the just and the justifier, those who are lost. This is the gospel of God. This is what Jesus is proclaiming and explaining. But the message goes on, picking up again in verse 15, and saying, back in Mark chapter 1, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. We didn't get in this much. What does it mean that the time is fulfilled? 
Well, the time is fulfilled means the kingdom of God is at hand. What time? The time. The time that all the prophets have been, have been prophesying. The time that all the people of God have been anticipating. There, there will be a time, the day of the Lord, when the Lord will come. Everything up to this point finds its fulfillment right now. The time, because the kingdom of God is at hand. This is different. Jesus talks about this kingdom. Because we don't have the idea of kingdom. We don't have kings and emperors and all that. But in that day, you were defined by whatever kingdom you lived in. So when, when they hear kingdom, they think, well, is it Rome? Is it Greece? Is it Egypt? Is it whatever. But Jesus tells us that this kingdom is different. Um, I'm going to spend a lot of time in the Gospels. These will be up on the screen. I want to bring these quickly. But if you have your Bibles, go to Luke 17. So when the Pharisees asked Jesus when the kingdom of, of God would come, he answered, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Now notice this verb here, coming, it's, it, it's a present action, meaning that it's, it, it's continual. It's not just one moment. The kingdom of God has come and everything's done. No, it is coming into this world. And that means that God's kingdom is, is, is growing and being built up with every lost sheep that is coming home. With every time the gospel is proclaimed and a heart is made anew, the kingdom of God is coming and it continues to come. The kingdom of God, as Jesus says, is not coming in ways that can be observed. It's not like you're thinking. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, because they're looking for a physical kingdom. But behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. It is a spiritual kingdom. It is a kingdom more powerful than kings and castles and thrones and is not limited to one place. It is not limited to one people. But this kingdom has a true king who builds his kingdom by transforming people from the inside out. By taking hearts that are dead, hearts of stone, and making them new and turning them into hearts of flesh. And that king does not reign on a throne that can be toppled by man. It does not reign on a throne that is, that is limited to one space and time. He reigns on a throne in the hearts of men. He reigns in heaven over all things. This is a kingdom more powerful and glorious and majestic than anyone could ever imagine. That is the kingdom that Jesus is talking about. And it is in your midst because I have come to usher it in. Jesus is not just proclaiming a new lifestyle. He's proclaiming a new world, opening their eyes to a spiritual kingdom that they cannot possibly fathom apart from knowing Him. So Jesus says that, but He also reminds Pilate in John 18, verse 36. When He stands before Pilate, and Pilate interrogates Him, asking about His, his kingship. So Pilate says, are you a king? Your own people hate you. They've delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus responds as he always does. Doesn't, ask, doesn't answer the question that they ask. He answers the question that they should have asked. Not are you a king, but what type of king are you? Something's different about you. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. So there's a kingdom, but it is different from this world. It is not of this world, meaning it's not of the same substance. You can't touch it and, and feel it the way that you want to, but it is indeed a kingdom. 
He says, my servants, if it was of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. If this world were my kingdom, you would see my legions of angels with flaming swords and chariots that would terrify you. This is not my kingdom. This world is passing away. My kingdom is not of the same substance. It is something better. And this is what Jesus is proclaiming, something new and something better before your eyes. You see me, but you can't understand. It is, it is a, a, a glimpse. And his proclamation is that the people of God, those who trust and believe his church, is, are members of that kingdom. And this kingdom is invisible now, but one day it will be visible. We talked about this several times, but the distinction between the invisible and the visible church. If you are a member of the church, you don't wear a stamp on your forehead. There is no uniform or special underwear or any other crazy stuff that other people do. You are citizens of an eternal spiritual kingdom. You do not see it now, but one day it will be in full glory. And that's what we look forward to. Christ's return in glory where we stand with him in a new created heavens and earth. And his kingdom, the heavenly Jerusalem, come down to meet the earthly new creation and it will be beautiful and it will be glorious and it will never fade away. Jesus right now is just giving them glimpses, just small pieces of what that kingdom will be. This is good news. This is great news. But it doesn't come cheaply and it doesn't come easily. There's a call and the call is very difficult. Repent and believe in the gospel. We talked about this last week. Repent This word has a negative connotation and a positive connotation. Turn from something and turn to something. This is also a continuous command. It can probably be translated, be converted. So we don't just get the negative aspect of it. Turn from, turn to, be converted. Be changed from this into this. Or, be born again. Because... True repentance, biblical repentance, does not just come without faith or without belief. This is not a one-time thing, but a perpetual state of being. Be converted or repent. And the real question this morning is, are you converted? Have you converted? Have you repented? Like we looked at last week, turn from what is over here, which is death, and everything apart from Christ, and turn here, which is life. You must repent and believe. You must turn from and turn to. The word believe in the, the, the verb sense, the action, it's the same word for the noun faith. The action is believe. The noun, the, the, the subject is faith. These two things work hand in hand. And they're, they're necessary for salvation. And this is the entire message of the Bible. The entire Bible. You can look at every story Every moral of every story is repent and believe. We've looked at this a lot in our Deuteronomy study. Turn from these false gods. Repent of your wicked ways and believe in the Lord. The message of the least enthusiastic prophet ever, Jonah. His message to Nineveh, repent and believe. Jeremiah's message to Israel. Hosea's message to Israel. Peter's message when he preaches soon after Pentecost, repent and believe and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And those who believed his words were baptized and the Holy Spirit came and showed his glory and power in the early church. 
This is the entire message of the Bible. Repent and believe. Turn from, turn to. Jesus says it clearly and says it succinctly. Again, like we talked about last week, we can make this so complicated. We can try to have all of the great theological answers, which are, which are good, and we should pursue those things, but don't forget the beauty and the simplicity of the gospel. Turn from what kills you. Turn to what makes you alive. Turn from your flesh and turn to life in Christ. And so some of you may ask, why do we talk about this all the time? Why is this so central? Turn from danger, turn to life, turn from your sin, turn to Christ. Why do we say this all the time? Well, because Jesus did, and John the Baptist did, so it's good enough for me. But I think there's something deeper going on here. Because there's a temptation to feel like, oh, I've heard that before. I'm a grown-up. I've got this, this figured out. You know, if in my mind, if I tip the scales and I do a little more good than I do, than I do bad, then I'll be fine. And God will accept me because I accept me. Isn't that what we try to tell ourselves? But the problem is we think we're the grown-ups in the situation. We think we're the ones that have it all together. But in reality, our Father in heaven knows us all too well and knows us like stumbling toddlers. And if you have a toddler, and we've got a few of those running around, you know that they love to go exactly where it would be most dangerous for them. They love to go toward the open hot oven. They love to run out into the street or run directly to the pool, even if they can't swim. And the toddler thinks they got it all figured out. Oh, what, could, what could go wrong? I've got the whole world before me. But loving, wise parents know better. And I'll tell you now, if you think you're an adult, you are just a very big toddler. Some of you have facial hair and all that kind of stuff, and you pay bills, but you act just like a toddler. And some of you respond like a toddler. When your father says, no, that's not good. Don't run in here and die. Don't run face first into the pool. But I want to. It looks inviting. But you don't know how to swim, and I care for you more than that. Or when, the, or when your, your parents put a wall in front of you and stop you from going. Why is this wall here? Why can't I go forward? Anyone ever had that, that prayer with God? Why am I stopping right here? Why won't you let me go any further? Because on the other side is danger, and I know better than you. Do you trust me? But many of you, many of us, like toddlers, we will throw a temper tantrum. And we will act like I know what's, what's best. Nothing wrong, nothing bad will ever happen. But knowing God is a good and loving father, and he wants you to turn away from running into the pool or the open oven or the road or insert whatever stupid thing you're about to do and turn to where it is where it is safe, where your, your, your Father cares for you. This is the message. And that's why the gospel is applicable to kids this high or six foot seven. It's still the same. Turn from what will kill you and turn to what will give you life and safety and comfort and peace. And every one of you can explain that. Every one of you has little toddlers or grown-up toddlers in your life who need to hear that same message. And when you believe the bad news, that there really is bad news, there really is consequences for our actions, and you believe the good news, that there really is a solution, and you act on that, that is what we call faith. So I want to bring in here uh, the Heidelberg Catechism. On the 21st Lord's Day, the question is, what is true faith? I think this is a great summary. True faith is a sure knowledge whereby I accept as true 
all that God has revealed in his word. At the same time, and this is key here, that's why I've bolded it there. At the same time, it is a firm confidence that not only to others, but also to me, God has granted forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness, and salvation out of mere grace only for the sake of Christ's merits. As Jesse asked last week, can you say that about yourself? Is this my Jesus? Has God granted forgiveness of my sins? Through Christ have I received righteousness and salvation by God's grace. That is faith. It is not a message just for those out there, for somebody else, but every one of us has to answer. Is this true or is Jesus a liar? If I put my faith in him and he promises all these things, will that be true? Is that true for me? And the writers of the catechism finish with this. Catechism just means teaching, by the way. This is a teaching tool coming early out of the Reformation. The faith of the Holy Spirit works in my heart by the gospel. This is why we proclaim the gospel. I cannot change your heart. I cannot make you believe. I cannot do anything within you. But the Holy Spirit can. And he does it through the proclamation of the word of God. The proclamation of the gospel and the content of the gospel is Jesus Christ. So simple, yet so profound. We could spend all day talking about this and still not scratch the surface. But we need to get into the application. And so, verses 16 through 20 are the illustration of this. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting their nets into the sea, for they were fishermen. Well, we know what a fisherman is in our context, but what is a fisherman on the Sea of Galilee? And first, I want to paint a picture of the Sea of Galilee. Just fun facts. Thought this would be interesting. I have some pictures up on the, on the screen because it's very beautiful. Um, so, Sea of Galilee, the, uh, the lowest um, freshwater lake in the world. And it's 13 by 7 miles wide. You can just kind of scan through those, Charles. That's fine. Uh, no particular order. But I love how Josephus, the early Jewish historian, describes this area. So remember earlier I said we're going to talk about why Jesus went here. One, it seems like it's beautiful. This is how Josephus describes it. He says it has pure, sweet waters, fertile soil, a pleasing climate. It supplies fruit and produce 10 months of the year, which supplied much of the region. He describes it as the pride of nature. This is the, the pinnacle of what nature's beauty looks like. And it is known for its, its beauty. And people all throughout the area would come here. And those who were, were, were traveling down to Rome or traveling further north would come down the jo- Jordan River, make a stop here, and refuel and get their, get their supplies. So this was a hub. And even in an unassuming area with a lot of fishermen, it had a lot to offer. So it was known for its beauty, but also for its violent storms that could come on at any time. This is why the disciples frequently would be caught in storms and Jesus walks in the water and has to calm the waves and all that. But also what's important for us to understand that fishers were at a very, fishermen had a very important role in that society. Because in that society, it was fish, not meat, was the main staple of food. And so their fishing trade was, was very important then. They actually had 12 harbors during the days of, of Rome. And there's going to be a picture of it up there. And so after the waterfall, which is beautiful, um, 
so there's the, the Sea of, of Galilee. In all of these little harbors, uh, little cities, they had, they had a, a business hub that went on in each one of those. And near the top, uh, Capernaum is kind of where Jesus' home base was. Bethsaida, a little bit over to the right, that's kind of where we think John the Baptist was, was baptizing. Um, Gennesaret is where he cast out the man with the demon. So um, you kind of get a picture. There's so much life happening in this small little lake. And so as we look at this picture of Jesus walking and seeing two brothers and walking a little bit further and seeing two more brothers fishing, you can kind of get the idea. There's a lot of places to fish where they were. So let's look at those two groups of disciples here. Simon and Andrew, who are brothers, and James and John, who are brothers. These two sets are mentioned uh, most often in the Gospels, and we'll get to them more in the book uh, later as, as we go on in Mark. One is going to be the most vocal leader, Simon Peter. One is going to be the beloved disciple who Jesus loves, who writes John's Gospel. And these are fishermen. These are hardworking guys. So these are early mornings. Long days, and if you don't know what type of fishing it was, this is not rod and reel. These are big nets. They would have weights tied to the bottom of them. They're in a circle. They would throw them out, and they have to drag them back in along the, the, the bottom of the sea. And if they got caught, they would often have to dive down and pick up the rocks and carry them by themselves, hoping that fish got caught in these nets. This is a very difficult process. This is not an easy job. But it was very lucrative, and it, they did have a lot of buyers because the species of fish were plentiful in this, this area. And so this was a sweaty, stinky job that not a lot of people wanted to do. And Jesus chooses to go to these guys. And these guys, uh, and if you don't know, um, John and Luke give us a little more details about what's, what happened in Jesus' calling of his disciples. And we don't have all those in Mark because Mark gets straight to the point. But John tells us that uh, Jesus met these disciples earlier. So he knew them. They knew him, but they went back to their, their real lives. Well, we meet this guy. John the Baptist tells us, check him out. He's, he's the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sins of the world, but back to work with our fathers and in our father's businesses. But Jesus goes to the stinky and the sweaty and the lowly and the humble. Guys who have calluses on their hands and smell like seaweed. Jesus seeks them out. They do not seek him. This is one of the first lessons we're going to learn here is that Jesus seeks and saves the lost. This is consistent throughout the word of God. Moses was not looking for, Moses was not looking for God. Abraham was not looking for God. But God knows where his sheep are. As we read this morning in our corporate prayer in Ezekiel 34, the picture of a shepherd who will seek out the sheep and who will care for them and who will provide for them. This is a shepherd knowing that there is lost sheep and he calls them and they hear his voice and they listen. And this is the call. Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. First, we're going to look at follow me. And I've got a few observations. I think at 11, maybe more. Um, just a few. So follow me. What does this tell us? One, this is very bold. Because in those days, the, uh, the, the, the smart Pharisees who had all the learning Typically, the students would seek them out. If you wanted to become a learner, you would go find a Pharisee who you wanted to study under or a teacher. Jesus seeks them out. This is different. This is out of the ordinary, especially because he has no clout in those days. He does not teach in a popular synagogue. He does not have this well-founded teaching ministry. He's still young in their eyes. He's 30 years old. So in their eyes, he is not old enough to be having disciples. But yet he 
in a humble posture seeks them out. So that's the first thing. It is humble and it is rare. Two, it is authoritative. Think about this. This guy just walking along the lake and says, follow me, leave everything. I'll make you fishers of men. That just sounds weird. But it is bold and he's speaking with authority because he can. So these things should not be lost on us. When Jesus speaks and says, follow me, it is not lightly. And they didn't take it lightly because they left. The other thing we want to notice is it is a call from where they are. He doesn't say, get yourself together, clean yourself up, do all of these good things, and then you can follow me. It is a call from where they are right now with immediate response. Immediately, Mark says both times, immediately they followed him. They did not delay. This is a call from where they are to leave where they are and follow him. The next thing, this is a conversion, like we've seen before, repentance and belief. It is a conversion in three things. Perspective. I guess of my 11 points, this one has three, so maybe there's 14. Anyways, not always great at math. So a conversion, from pers- conversion of perspective. Instead of seeing things primarily as a fisherman, as a follower of my father, now I'm going to see things from how he sees them. My perspective will change. But also, my priority will change. I'm no longer a fisherman. This is no longer my, my, my trade, my primary concern. And my pledge will change. My allegiance is no longer with my nets and the fish. My allegiance is now with him. A change of perspective. A change of pledge and a change of priority. And so this is a call also to leave behind what you are most familiar with. This is it. In that culture, there's no upward mobility. It's not like, hey, I want to be a fisherman this week, and I'm going to go paint houses next week. That doesn't happen. If you're a fisherman, if your father was a fisherman, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren will be fishermen. This is a call to leave what you know and everyone you have ever known knows. And it is a call to leave behind what you know in your job. Literally, sometimes, oftentimes. But the point here is not that fishing was bad, but there's something better. There's something greater. This is not just, the point is not a change in occupation, but is a change in motivation. That is no longer bringing fish in that will satisfy me. There is something greater that I need to be satisfied in. And is also, next thing, a call to move forward in faith. Jesus doesn't say, come follow me. We're going to stay at this Hilton. We're going to travel here. We're going to have all these things set up for us. They didn't know where they were going. But come follow me. There's a promise that God would provide. There's a unique little detail here. That when James and John left their father Zebedee, the boat still had hired hands. So even in that little detail, he shows that God will still provide. He didn't leave. Just because we leave, we're going to worry about what's going to happen to dad. He's got hired servants. And Simon and Andrew left behind their boat. Who happened, what happens to it? Who knows Who cares? But God will provide for them. And then it's not just a call from something, but it's always a call to something. I will make you fishers of men. This change in direction is not aimless. It is not without purpose. I will make you fishers of men. And it is a transformation of identity. Next thing. Word here. I will make you become fishers of men. There's an identity shift here. Who you are, your identity will change. What you become is now up to me. So there is a 
change of direction, a change of purpose, and a call that He will complete. I will make you. I will do it. And then lastly, it is a call that's not alone. These are real men. Peter and Andrew and James and John. You are never called to isolation. Jesus calls you to a new family, to a new community. It's not a call in isolation. You follow me and you follow me in the same way. And you walk through this together. This is a beautiful picture of the gospel call. Everything changes for them, yet there is so much more security and encouragement because they do it with one another. They're doing it from who calls them, and he calls them to something. This is how we should see the gospel call, from the ordinary to the extraordinary. This is what it means to repent and believe. I'm going to turn from this, from everything else I know that makes me comfortable, to what Jesus says is important. So I want to ask, is this how you view being a disciple of Jesus? When Jesus declares, follow me, how do you respond? If you, are, if you do consider yourself a follower of Jesus, what type of follower are you? There is no such thing as a half-hearted follower. I'll tell you in just a moment how Jesus responds to those who say, yeah, let me go tie up my nets and talk to my dad and attend this birthday party. And Yeah, I'll go to church next week after I tie up everything that I want to do first. Come, follow me now, right now. What saddens me is I talk to so many people and see people who claim to be Christians, and it's like they've got the Jesus badge. Oh, yeah, I got it right here. I pinned it on my shirt, but it's among all my other badges, my political party badge and my I live in a nice house and cut my grass badge. And, and, and Jesus is just another thing among many. But we can't get that from the Scriptures. Because what else does Jesus say about following him? And, and I want to work through a couple of these before we close up. Mark chapter 10. What does Jesus say about following him? Mark chapter 10, verse 28. And I'm going to stick in the Gospels, and I'm going to do them in order just to make this easy on you. So we're in chapter 1. Go to chapter 10, verse 28. Peter said to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Good, right? Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mothers or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and land. First thing we got to see, there is blessing that comes from following Jesus and leaving everything behind. But we skip over this next word, with persecution. You can get a hundredfold persecution. It is not going to be easy. It is not promised to be easy, but the blessings are there and they are eternal. And in the age to come, eternal life. This is what it means. Would I trade present comfort and present blessing and present familiarity for eternal security? That is what it comes down to. But he takes it a step further as we get to Luke chapter 9. And here's where the hard line is drawn in the sand. Luke 9, verse 23 through 26. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Like I said last week, repentance is not a one-time thing. It is a daily process. 
take up his cross. Jesus went to the cross and shed his blood for our sins. Take up your cross does not bear whatever burden you think you're bearing at the moment. It means share in the sufferings of Christ. It means walk as he walked, but knowing that if you are his and he is yours, then you will take everything that came at him, the persecutions, the hate, the vitriol, but also the righteousness and the eternal life. Take up your cross daily, not just one time. This is a continual thing. There is no expiration date on the Christian life, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. You try to hold on to this world, you try to save this world in your own strength, you're going to die. And not just the kind where they put you in a casket, where you experience death and torment forever. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Is trading your life now worth trading eternity with Christ? For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? The riches of the world do not compare with the riches of heaven and the, and the creator of heaven and earth. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. There's a lot at stake here. It's not just saying I follow Jesus, but standing with him every day and not being ashamed of him. One more at the end of the chapter, verse 57. Luke 9, 57. As, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Easy how quickly you can kind of poke holes in that. Yeah, sure, Jesus, I'll follow you. I don't, I don't have a mansion. I don't have a secure place for you to sleep. Uh, maybe I won't. Maybe it's not as comfortable as I thought. Next one. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me go first and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Ouch. I mean, I can't even go to my father's funeral. If your father's funeral means more to you than the gospel, then you're not worthy of him. Yet another said, I will follow you, but let me first say farewell to those in my house. Jesus said to them, no one puts his hand to the plow and looks back as fit for the kingdom of God. Follow me. No, Jesus, I want to reel these, these, these fish in. I've still got some things to take care of at home. If you see the work and if you see the labor and you think you could ever turn back, you're not fit for the kingdom of God. If anything else could compare with the news that I'm giving you, you're not fit for the kingdom of God. That is harsh. That's not, that's not the loving, happy Jesus that I want to create. Jesus says there's a narrow way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. It is not in burying your father. It is not in getting your house in order. It is not in getting a comfortable place to stay. It is me. And if you don't think that I'm better than anything else the world has to offer, you are not fit for me or welcome in my kingdom. This is a harsh cold message unless you realize how great the glory of God is and the comfort of being with your Savior forever then it is all the comfort and peace you will ever need and he says I will make you fishers of men the analogy continues and we'll look at one passage in Matthew and then I'll give you some application Matthew 13 Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. This is how Jesus describes the kingdom of God in the parable of a net. What does it mean to be a fisher of men? Matthew 13, pick up in verse 47. 
Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathers fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers and threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into a fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What does it mean to be a fisher of men, a fisher of souls? The gospel is a wide net that goes out. Proclaim to every tongue, tribe, and nation the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, who lived sinlessly, who died totally. For those who would believe in him, who raised again, that they might raise to new life in him. And the message goes out, and everyone gets caught in the net. They, they, they hear it, but then they turn out to be trash fish, thrown back and tossed aside, and they will be burned in the fire. The gospel ministry does not mean that everyone you talk to is going to respond the way you want to. There are no guarantees in that. And so what can we learn from that? Just some simple applications from that. One, ever wonder why Jesus called his disciples so early? Jesus starts his ministry and soon after starts to meet young men and says, follow me. Why? In his power, he could have said, after his resurrection, here, have my Holy Spirit, go out, you have everything you need. There's, there are certain things you can only learn in the training. There are certain things you can only learn in walking with Jesus over time. So I want to encourage you, don't downplay being a disciple. Don't downplay the day-to-day learning with the Lord. Don't downplay his discipline, because there's certain things we can only learn and grow over time. Jesus, of anyone, could give them everything they needed to know in a moment, but he chose to walk with them for days and months and years so that they could grow and they could mature. And the Lord does the same thing with us. We learn so much more through the process than we do the results. Second thing, Jesus' disciples, these disciples, the word means learner, who became fishers of men, they became apostles, which means sent ones, who became evangelists, which means proclaimers of the good news, who became church planters, who made disciples, who made disciples by the power of the Holy Spirit, and we are the men that those men caught. Think about that. I will make you fishers of men, you 12 ragtag, lowly knuckleheads, as I like to call them. If you read the Gospels, they are knuckleheads. But we are still the fruit of their ministry. We are the fish that they caught. He is still working through the same message, through the same process. That's an amazing thing. So I just want to encourage you. Third thing, gospel ministry is much like fishing. It's a great analogy. It's a lot of preparation. It's a lot of patience. You might work all day and you won't see a catch. You may bring in a lot of fish that you can't eat. Sometimes are more fruitful than others, whether it's preaching, whether it's evangelizing, evangelizing whether it's discipling. But sitting down, encouraging someone, when you, but just like fishing, when you throw your net or you throw your pole into the water, there is no guarantee that something's going to bite on the other end. It is completely up to the hand of God, and that's an encouragement to us. Just like you cannot make a fish bite a hook, you can't make someone respond to the message, but we are to be faithful to do it. Just like fishermen don't give up if, if they don't catch anything one day, or they don't catch the size they want, or doesn't have the, the, the fruit that they want. The, the analogy works, but you are a fisher of men. This is gospel business. So, in conclusion, I'll leave you with four points. They'll be up on the screen. 
True faith requires repentance and belief in the gospel of God. That good news is that Jesus Christ saves sinners. True faith requires that you say that Jesus Christ has saved me. That is not the end of our, our calling, but the beginning. Jesus does not call you to leave you where you are. It's a call from something and a call to something. Next, the call to discipleship is the call to follow Christ and to leave all behind. It's on the next slide. A call to live for him and a call to die for yourself. There's a call to live and a call to die. I'll just leave you with this. Jesus declares, follow me. How do you respond? Let's pray. Lord, we praise you as a God of reconciliation, a God who makes what is broken put back together, what is hurt healed, what is separated reconciled, what is wicked cleansed, what is dead alive, what is lost found, what is blind you give sight to. This you are worthy of our praise and honor for. That you would send your son. That he would call us to himself. The poor and the lowly and the weak. And he shows no partiality to the rich or the influential. The message is the same. Repent and believe. Thank you for this message. Thank you that we can be ministers of this gospel. And I pray for everyone who is here who does not know you. And I hope this does not fall on deaf ears. I hope the call to follow Christ is not done halfway. Lord, convict us, bring to our awareness anything that we are still holding on to. Our plow or our nets or whatever it is where we find our identity and our safety because we don't trust that you can provide. We don't trust your promises. We don't trust what you say. Help us to trust you. Help us to turn from those things and turn to you in faith because this is where true comfort and peace and everlasting citizenship lies in your kingdom. And this is truly good news. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.